0: I'm not. There's too much trouble for the police at this stage in the
1: inquiry. You know, he's only a baby. Two boys, aged 10 years, from Walton area, have been arrested by Merseyside police.
2: The murder of little James and the disclosure of how he'd been tortured by the two older boys resulted in angry scenes outside the court when they were tried. Among the messages, the question on many minds here: Why?
1: I'm Stephen Wright. And this is the mailplus plus true crime podumentary, the murder of James Bolger. During my career as a crime journalist, there have been a number of times when it's been necessary to censor my reports to spare the public the full horror of a particular case the trials of House of Horrors murderess Rosemary West and the psychopathic British banker Rurik Jutting come immediately to mind. There was evidence in those cases which were simply too awful to put into print. The same applies to the murder of two-year-old James Bolger who was abducted while out shopping with his mother on Merseyside in 1993. His mutilated body was found by a rail track days later it was then that the case became truly historic after two 10-year-old local boys emerged as the prime suspects. In a trial which attracted worldwide headlines, Robert Thompson and John Venables were later convicted of James's murder. I was at the very beginning of my Daily Mail career Working in our newsroom when those verdicts were delivered at Preston Crown Court. Since then, I have reported on various developments in the case, including the release of the killers. In preparing for this podcast, I was really shocked, even as a battle hardened crime journalist, as I refreshed my memory about what happened to James, and I've no intention here of going into unnecessary detail about the injuries he suffered. Instead, With the help of Sir Richard Henriquez, who led the prosecution against Thompson Venables, I will be examining how the police investigated the case, the special measures put in place in court for dealing with Britain's youngest murderers, the effect the trial had on those involved in it, including jurors, and the wider issue of the age of criminal responsibility. There's also the key issue of the role violent films seen by the killers before the murder, had in the Bolger case. It's the inside story of a momentous trial from the QC who spearheaded the Crown case and who has written about the case in his new book, From Crime to Crime. can we go back to to february 93 because the abduction and the murder of james bolger really shocked the nation and it went on to, obviously to a completely different level when the ages of the suspects became known when did the case sort of enter your consciousness you know before you were actually instructed to lead the prosecution case
0: i read about the case as everybody else in the country did in the national press i think it was on Valentine's Day 1993, that I read of the abduction at a time when James was
1: missing. You know, I'm not, too much trouble for the police at this stage in the inquiry uh, because, I mean, you know, he's only a baby.
0: And it was only a matter of days after that that I heard that I'd been retained to conduct the prosecution. By then, of course, Thompson and Venables had been arrested and had been charged.
2: A week to the day since James disappeared, the man leading the hunt for his murderers <coughs> announced that police have arrested two boys. <coughs> the arrest came after hundreds of callers among <coughs> the incident room overnight. They were responding to the first television showing of two new photographs.
1: One with well, I imagine at that stage, the true extent of the injuries suffered by James were not in the public domain. But the very fact that two 10-year-olds had been arrested and charged with the abduction of James was truly shocking and really posed public order issues, didn't it, on Merseyside because people were so angry.
0: I saw the news that night and there were pictures of vans being attacked by youths on Merseyside and uh, I then appreciated that there was huge public anger as to what had occurred.
1: It was a truly historic case, wasn't it? The suspects were only 10 when they were alleged to have committed the crimes. And of course, they went on to be convicted aged 11, making them the youngest children to be convicted of murder in the UK. Their age must have really, even in the early days, posed challenges for you, the CPS and Merseyside Police. It was an
0: extremely difficult case. There were a number of complications. The immediate one was the huge amount of adverse publicity that had been visited upon the two defendants. The real danger that a judge would conclude that they couldn't have a fair trial was something that uh, we were very much alerted to. The press were very, very hostile to both defendants. In particular, the local press, the Liverpool Echo, Perfectly, understandably so, because they were reflecting the mood of the city.
1: Did you have any involvement in the decision to charge the boys with murder? Because the big issue here, of course, was the age of criminal responsibility. Could they, at that age, that young age, be responsible for their actions?
0: That was, in legal terms, the greatest problem. It had to be shown for those between the ages of 10 and 14 that before they could be convicted of any crime, the prosecution had to prove, firstly, that they'd committed the offence, and secondly, that at the time of committing it, they knew that what they had done was seriously wrong. Plainly, however, we were able to obtain evidence both from teachers and psychiatrists that not only that they must have known that what they did was seriously wrong, but that even a five-year-old would know that to throw stones and to use weapons against a two, nearly three-year-old child was seriously wrong.
1: When they were charged, the rules around what can be put into the public domain by the media are very strict so as not to prejudice the court proceedings. When was it that you were first aware of the true horror, the true scale of the attack that they inflicted on James.
0: We had the difficult task of choosing which photographs to include in the jury bundle. They were undoubtedly the worst and most potentially upsetting photographs that I was ever asked to look at bear in mind that James's body had been run over by a a
1: train the murder of James was in February 93 the trial started in the November of that year.
2: In separate police vans, the two boys who faced trial for murder, abduction and attempted abduction arrived at Preston Crown Court just after half past nine this morning, day one of a hearing which is due to last up to a month.
1: We spoke just briefly about the issues around media coverage and the public mood on Merseyside, one of intense anger. Apart from those issues, what was the biggest challenge for you in the preparing the prosecution case and ensuring that justice went smoothly.
0: The psychiatric evidence was going to be extremely important. From a very early stage, I had anticipated the real likelihood that the real issue would be between murder and manslaughter and the real question of whether either of the boys was of diminished responsibility on the morning of the trial, I was asked by counsel whether the prosecution would consider pleas of guilty to manslaughter. Uh, I very swiftly rejected it.
1: So there was never a chance that you were going to accept a a manslaughter plea, which would have resulted in a lot less of the evidence coming out, of course, and and a less substantial sentence if they were convicted of murder.
0: Not for a moment. Had I accepted it, it would have been a crushing blow to the Bulger family, but the whole of the Liverpool community w- would have been almost as enraged with me, I think, as they were with the two defendants. It would have been a wholly, wholly unsatisfactory course to take. Had, of course, the psychiatrists come up with the view that the boys were of diminished responsibility, and had there been agreement between prosecution and defense psychiatrists that they were of diminished responsibility, then I would have had no option but to accept a plea of guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. What I was not prepared to do was to accept a plea of guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of lack of intent to kill or to cause really serious injury.
1: When was the last time, if ever, that you had prosecuted two 10- or 11-year-olds, Sir Richard? I mean, that's the sort of thing you see at at youth court, isn't it? A couple of lads up for for nicking apples, and here you had two boys charged with murder of the most horrific kind.
0: Never had I prosecuted boys of that age. I had no experience of youth courts, and I had never seen defendants of this age in the dock in the Crown Court.
1: What was that like? Because they were so young and you were charged with trying to convict them of the most serious crime on the book. it have been really strange to see such young defendants.
0: It it was very strange indeed. The dock had, had to be altered in order to accommodate them because they were so small that they were not able to see out of the dock at Preston Crown Court as it was constructed. Fortunately, the administrative staff at the court had foreseen this difficulty, and they had elevated the floor of the dock by one foot so that the two boys could see out. In due course, the European Court at Strasbourg criticized this, and indeed concluded that the elevation of the dock, in that it could be said to have, in effect, put the boys on display, rendered this, in the views of the Strasbourg Court, an unfair trial. And indeed, they awarded damages, £15,000 to Thompson, £29,000 to Venables,
1: It wasn't just a question of the dock being elevated so they could see what was going on. No doubt there would have been criticism if they couldn't have seen what was going on, which adds to the row, I suppose, over how they got compensation in the end. But other measures were put in place, weren't there, to ease the burden of them at such a young age having to go through this ordeal, quote-unquote, of standing trial for murder.
0: Every possible effort was made by the judge and solicitors and counsel to make life as easy and comfortable as they possibly could to the boys. The judge, through his clerk, ascertained exactly what lesson times there would be at their school. We had breaks after 45 minutes. We had a lunch break that mirrored their own lunch break. We had afternoon sittings at the same time that they would be in class in the afternoon. They were never placed in any cells within the area below the dock. Their counsel, he and his instructing solicitor, took down a Nintendo Game Boy and one of the matters we would discuss in the robing room at the end of each day was whether Isaacson had been able to beat Thompson at a competitive game of Nintendo Game Boy.
1: Did it cross your mind how the jury might react to seeing such young defendants in the dock that there might be an element of sympathy or just utter confusion there about what's going on? I was
0: very conscious of the fact throughout the case that whilst there was likely to be initial sympathy for James and his family, that at some stage during the trial, sympathy may swing to the defendants and to their ordeal being in the dock. I particularly thought that when the jury heard about the very deprived upbringing the two had had the very limited education, the amount of truancy that they were able to get away with, the exposure of the children to video films. It always seemed to me that there was a real danger that emotions may suddenly swing in favor of the two defendants. They looked very young and very vulnerable in the dock. Strangely, I don't think that at any stage of the trial that the pendulum of sympathy ever swung in their direction. I think that the devious nature of all the lies that they told, the way that the lies were varied and switched, followed by their own performance in interview when each never hesitated to blame the other with references to the other one being very sly, and that was just the sort of thing that he would have done. Never at any stage could it be anticipated that any right-thinking member of the public would feel any real uh, sympathy towards those two defendants.
1: The prosecution case opened in November '93. Can you remember the opening lines from your prosecution? Because that's so important, isn't it, in terms of grabbing the attention of the jury?
0: Well, my opening words were these. James Bulger was two years and 11 months old when he died. He was the only child of Ralph and Denise Bulger, and they live in Kirby. They always called him James, and we will refer to him as James throughout this trial. He died on Friday, the 12th of February this year. In short, these two defendants abducted James from his mother in a shopping precinct in Bootle. They walked him some two and a half miles across Liverpool to Walton, a very long and distressing walk for a two-year-old toddler. James was then taken onto a railway line and subjected to a prolonged and violent attack bricks, stones, and a piece of metal appear to have been thrown at James as he lay on the railway line.
1: And of course, that only told half the story because James, as the pathologist concluded, suffered 42 really appalling injuries, including a fractured skull, It was a really ferocious, sustained attack, wasn't it? And as you've alluded to, I think, in your book and earlier in our conversation here, you had to make difficult decisions about just how much evidence should be put into the public domain about the injuries and how much the jury should see.
0: The prosecution only had to prove murder. There were no categories for murder. And so, very, very detailed examination of the body would not be necessary or indeed appropriate during the trial. The number of injuries, the location of the injuries, the likely agent used bricks, stones, metal plate, feet, uh, those needed to be told to the jury. But bear in mind that that this body had, apart from anything else, been uh, run over by a train. And so it was not, Necessary or desirable to go into every single individual injury.
1: And of course, there was a suggestion that there was a sexual element to this attack as well. I don't propose we discuss that in any great detail, but I think it's important to raise it as an issue given the nature of the case. Did you refer to that in your prosecution or was a deliberate decision taken not to raise that as a possible motive?
0: There was a deliberate decision because there was no certain proof that there was a sexually motivated attack and had there been it couldn't be demonstrated that it was attributable to either defendant.
1: I remember a few years ago I was covering a trial in Hong Kong of a British banker called Rurik Jutting who tortured and murdered two women in the most horrific circumstances there were journalists in the press box at the hong kong high court in tears i remember thinking i'm so grateful that i don't have to see these videos or these pictures of the torture of these women i just wondered did you sense a reaction from the jurors about the pictures which they had to see of James's appalling injuries? Because it's a real ordeal, isn't it, for jurors who have to see stuff which the rest of the court doesn't see, or certainly the the public gallery and the journalists don't see.
0: Yes, there's no doubt about that. And I think as years moved on, I think juries have been asked to look at less and less graphic images of injuries There was a difference though in this case because we had to show that these children knew that what they were doing was seriously wrong and the photographs were shown to the jury so that they could have the view that the boys would have had as they were inflicting these injuries. And there was one particular photograph which was vitally important because it distinguished between the roles played by the two boys. There was an imprint on James's face of the laces in Thompson's trainers and the rings through which the laces were, were fed. There was a very clear imprint showing the manner in which the laces had been tied. Thompson, as is the custom amongst many of his age group, never untied the laces of his trainers. He simply took off his trainers, tied as they always were in the same way. When his trainers were seized, the way in which the knot was tied could be made out on the face of James. And if there was a moment when guilt was proven, It was when that evidence was being given and I think put an end uh, to any suggestion that this was anything less than a very, very violent attack.
1: Apart from the forensic evidence, a key part of the prosecution case was the interviews with the suspects and really what was to be a brutal cutthroat defence. And, of
0: course, each of them attributing every one of these violent blows to the other and so that at the end of it the 40 odd injuries were all accounted for by individual violent acts and so at the end of it the jury through the mouths of the two defendants knew exactly what violence had been visited upon James all they had to decide was whether the two defendants were in it together
2: Detectives now know that James Bulger was dragged along this path about 15 minutes after his abduction. Earlier, they found batteries and a tin of model paint. They believe the boys shoplifted them before the abduction. Teddy bears now sit on the Shrine of Flowers. Among the messages, the question on many minds here, why?
1: Given the length of the journey from Bootle to the scene of the crime and the length of time the injuries must have taken to inflict, it wasn't a difficult question to answer, was it?
0: No, it wasn't. And in fact, the 38 witnesses on that route march between Bootle and Walton, it was very telling that the two defendants both contributed telling the lie that we're just taking our baby brother home or or something similar. There was an observation of the two boys taking James onto the railway line and the two of them carried him up onto an elevated stretch of the railway line and the two of them were heard to be laughing. The fact that they were both in it together was very very plain from the very beginning that the photograph that will remain forever in my mind and anyone associated with the case of the two of them together leading him away right the way through the journey on foot onto the railway line the two of them were very very plainly in it together
1: classic case really Sir Richard, isn't it of James being in the wrong place at the wrong time, although being with his mother in a shopping centre, he really wouldn't have thought that he was any great danger, but for her momentary lapse in losing sight of him.
0: It was absolutely momentary, and uh, I apprehend that for years after that, mothers taking toddlers shopping just never let go of their hands. It was nothing more than that. One second he was there, the next minute he was gone, and she's had to live with that. The sympathy of every mother of a toddler must have been with her, thinking, just this could have happened to me at at any time.
1: The prosecution case ended. I'd imagine you anticipated that neither thompson or Venables or suspect a and suspect b as they were known then would give evidence but i would imagine you'd have to prepare for them giving evidence albeit unlikely that they would do so would i be right in thinking that i
0: certainly have prepared for them to give evidence although i was fairly sure that they weren't going to because a number of questions had been asked particularly of psychiatrists The question was asked on behalf of Venables that he finds it, does he not, almost impossible to relive events, to think about the case, to answer questions about it, and so on. And that was leading counsel preparing the way not to call Venables. I think there'd been similar questions asked on behalf of Thompson, and it came as no surprise.
1: So your closing arguments to the jury before the judge summed up and sent the jury out, you were keen to emphasise this is murder, not manslaughter.
0: That was the essence of my closing speech. It was the gravity of the attack that they must have intended at the very, very least really serious injury. And, of course, the fact they'd laid the body to rest on a railway line in terms of uh, intent, was absolutely critical. And, of course, I also had to deal with the doly incapax, the necessity to show that they knew that what they did was seriously wrong.
1: The jury, remarkably, in my opinion, although I wasn't at the trial, came back within just a few hours with uh, murder convictions. Extraordinary. Do you agree, or were you half expecting that?
0: Strangely, as the years have moved on, juries have tended to take longer with their verdicts. At the time, it it was just the sort of length of time that one would have anticipated. It didn't come as a great surprise that they came back within the day. The evidence really was very clear that they were in it together. And equally, the evidence was that they had intended to do something that they knew was very seriously wrong.
1: Do you remember the jury's reaction when the verdicts were read out?
0: A number of the jurors were actually in tears. I have heard over the years that more than one of them required some form of counselling. It was, for everybody involved, emotionally, a very, very taxing case.
1: Now, of course, the big issue here was the identities of the killers. They were known as A and B. Lawyers for Associated Newspapers, publishers of the Daily Mail, made an application for the anonymity order to be lifted, and you, the prosecutor, supported that. And It was a successful application. Can you explain why you felt it necessary that the world should know who Thompson and Vernables were? It
0: has always seemed to me that publicity plays a very critical role in the criminal justice process. The argument that I advanced was that if it is thought that members of the public can get away with crime anonymously and just be referred to as A and B, they're far more likely to commit crime than if their names are made public. The other argument, of course, is that the public have a right to know who it is that's uh, committed such a shocking act.
1: It's just my hunch, obviously, but I think if the James Baldwin murder trial happened today, Thompson and Venables were convicted of murder, I'm not so sure a judge, bearing in mind human rights and all other issues, would indeed lift anonymity order for such defendants of such a young age.
0: You may well be right, Stephen. It's certainly one of those arguments which could go either way. The real problem is, had the judge permitted anonymity to continue Notwithstanding uh, every attempt made not to publicise them, word would have been around every pub, club, street corner on Merseyside. I'm told it was in any event. Everybody from the area of Liverpool in which the defendants lived knew exactly who it was, as they were bound to.
1: What that anonymity order being lifted did for the media was make it far more easy to tell the life stories of these boys. Which brings me to the question: What made them what they were? Were they, in your opinion, born evil? Were they a product of their dysfunctional upbringing? And who, if either, was the stronger character in that relationship? I'm thinking about the folly of derthing when two people come together and they create an evil body of one, so to speak. What's your assessment of that?
0: I would be very loath indeed, to conclude that they were born evil. There's every reason to think that the way in which they were brought up contributed very significantly, indeed. They had a very, very deprived childhood. They regularly truanted from school. They were regularly exposed to videos that perhaps they shouldn't have seen. And I would be very hesitant indeed to suggest that they were either born evil or were constitutionally evil as between the leading force, the more positive and uh, rather more dominant of the two. From what I heard and saw, Robert Thompson appeared to be slightly more dominant I would not, however, put him down as the leader in the sense that Venables was either led astray by Thompson or was totally dominated by Thompson. But Thompson appeared to be the stronger, and of course, he was able throughout the police interviews to withstand his ground, whereas it was Venables who rather lost control during the interviews and burst into tears.
1: You mentioned that the killers saw videos which they shouldn't have seen. A key part of evidence, potentially, which didn't go into the prosecution case was a video called Child's Play 3, which was basically a horror movie which had a similar sort of script, shall we say, to what happened to poor James. Chucky's back. A few years have passed.
0: No, you're dead.
2: The story shows similarities to the Bulger case. And although police on Merseyside say there's no evidence of a link, the Home Secretary is already under pressure.
1: Can you talk me through that and the reason why that horror video wasn't used as evidence? There
0: was a doll in it called Chucky. Chucky was eventually run down by a fairground train, and Chucky's body was covered in blue paint and so there were very plainly parallels with what happened to james we had to make a decision as to whether to make that part of the prosecution case the police took the view that it was a red herring they were not able to prove that the two boys had actually seen the video the fact is that Venable's father had taken out that video from the video shop. Indeed, it was the most recent one that he had taken out. I think on the balance of probabilities, they had seen it. But there's a golden rule in prosecuting not to allege something that you cannot prove. We concluded that we couldn't prove that both boys had seen the video, Charles Play 3. We had an abundance of evidence that this was an act of murder and that making Charles play three part of the prosecution case, when we were unable to prove that either of them had seen it, was not
1: appropriate. The judge was quite clear. He thought violent videos had played a role in this. What's your assessment? Why did Venables and Thompson do this? Aged 10, why did they do it?
0: I think that more likely than not, the video played its part That doesn't in any way provide them with any sort of a defense. Having seen that video, I think it more likely than not that they decided to go and steal the blue paint, that they decided to take a child that they would have likened to Chucky, to a railway line, to suffer a a similar fate to the fate that Chucky suffered in the video Child's Play 3.
1: The original sentence was that the killers be detained at Her Majesty's Pleasure a minimum of eight years. It was subsequently raised to 15. It became a very political issue, didn't it, the sentencing. Ultimately, they were released on their 18th birthdays, or thereabouts, in 2001. Did the punishment fit the crime there for you?
0: It's an enormously difficult problem. Any sentence allowing their release at all will have seemed too short to James's family, his friends, his supporters. The trial judges' thoughts were that eight years would allow them to avoid actually having to go into an adult prison. The Lord Chief Justice took the view that eight years was too short and recommended ten years. Michael Howard, who by the time he came to consider it had received volumes and volumes of communications from the public, took the view that 10 years was too short and recommended 15 years in from crime to crime i've expressed the view that should a similar case come before the courts today that a likely sentence would probably be one of 15 years
1: and of course Sir richard you had a very extensive career first at the bar and then as a high court judge was there ever a case that affected you as much as this one
0: I've no hesitation in saying that this case made a greater impact than any other. I've been able to see videos of him taken very shortly before he was murdered. He was at that very, very charming age when he'd acquired a personality. His whole life was ahead of him. Seeing the way in which he just disappeared from his mother's side, then seeing the way in which, which he died would be impossible, impossible not to be affected by it. Every time one sees a two or three-year-old, it's impossible not just to say to oneself, well, how is it possible to throw a stone at or kick in the head a child of that age? It was truly a very, very sad case.
1: You've been listening to a Mail Plus True Crime Podumentary with me, Stephen Wright. With thanks to Sir Richard Henriquez, whose new book, From Crime to Crime, is published by Hodder Stoughton. Next time on True Crime, Scotland Yard's disgraced VIP abuse inquiry and the liar known as Nick.